It begins there, but moves out beyond. I think today is our fourth installment on this series, if my arithmetic is correct. We did a morning on the God who hears the cry of his people, the, the slaves in Egypt groaning under their burdens, and God heard them. We did a morning on the God who calls, of course, that pivotal moment in world history, really, Moses, Moses. When God calls to Moses, he calls him from the burning bush, from the fire. That was a good message. Norm was afraid he was preaching heresy that day. The God who calls, the God who delivers or rescues his people. Of course, the dramatic events leading up to and including climaxing at the parting of the Red Sea. This morning we want to move on another step in this series to Mount Sinai and what flows out of that where God gives Moses his Torah or which simply means instruction and the God we meet in this is the God who instructs. So to see things in context, the God who hears our cry, the God who calls, the God who delivers or rescues and now the God who instructs. We'll call him teacher God. Teacher God. Now, he's the teacher God even before he starts to formally give Moses the Torah or the instruction at Mount Sinai. He's been teaching them before they even get there. For example, the, 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 there's a three-month journey uh, they have to go to through before they even get to Sinai across a substantial distance in the desert. The teacher God in the wilderness and what he's teaching Israel there is to look to him for all things, for everything, for literal survival. They have to look to him if they're going to even be alive the next day. That's the journey he's taking them on because there's no resources in the desert unless you receive them supernaturally. There's the pillar of cloud and fire that guides them. We read Israel's story, many twists and turns. There's problems, delays, setbacks, a million and one things. You know one thing you never see happening to them during this whole journey of 40 years? Never once do they get lost. They had something better than a satinav. They had this pillar it was cloud during daylight and during, in darkness it became a, a pillar of flame and fire. They had to trust God. Which way do we go now? Well, they always knew. They were, the teacher God was teaching them to depend on him for all things. They finally were running out of water. They finally, to the great relief, found water, they thought, but they tried to use it and it was bitter. It was undrinkable. God speaks to Moses. He says, take that stick of wood and hurl it into, the, into this lake. And it instantly, supernaturally became sweet. When you need water, you think you've found it, but it's no good. God will help you. He will transform it and make it sweet. They're learning to look to him for all things. Then they needed food, but there was no food. They cried out to God. Moses cried out to God. Some of the people were grumbling. This is a tense moment. What good does God do? He steps in and teaches them. 
He's the provider God. They receive what the, the later in, in Psalms and in the New Testament, look back on the manna miracle. That bread they, is called the bread of angels. I love that little phrase. It's in the Psalms and quoted, I believe, in the book of Acts. The bread of angels, manna, manna from heaven. After that, they're running, running out of water again. And this time there is no lake full of water, either sweet or bitter. There is simply no water. God takes them to this rock and he supernaturally brings water out of a rock. Now, I suppose there are forms of rocks, if you know where to look, that contain very small amounts of moisture in them, but that's not what this is. This is quantities of water that can slake the thirst of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Supernatural water. Then they think the crises are over. Well, they were over for about 20 minutes. <laughs> because then they get attacked by a hostile neighboring tribe called the Amalekites, sons, sons of Amalek. They were fierce warriors. They were known for coming up behind you when you're on a journey and picking off the stragglers, the weak people. And they start attacking Israel Moses goes up onto a top of a mountain. He takes the staff of God and he holds it up and he intercedes. Meanwhile, Joshua and his army are battling the Malachites down on the ground. And as Moses intercedes, God enables Joshua and his army to defeat the Amalekites. Israel lives to journey another day. What are they leaning, learning? Teacher God is teaching them to look to him for all things. A new crisis arises, it doesn't matter because you have the same God and he's new every morning. He's the teacher God. Israel's learning here to look to him for all things. Now the teacher God brings them to a mountain. It's interesting how much mountains appear in the Bible and even they have a place in world history, Mount Everest, you know, what it, Mount whatever. And uh, one of the pivotal mountains in Scripture and again in history is Mount Sinai. They gather at the foot of the mountain. Uh, teacher God teaches them before he speaks a word about how holy he is because as they're gathered at the foot of the mountain, his presence, his manifest presence comes down out of heaven. It descends from the sky onto the summit of this mountain and the whole mountain starts to shake. God is so holy that even inanimate material like rock trembles when he draws near. There's fire, there's smoke, there's lightning, there's the sound of a trumpet blast, all of which says, this is a holy God. Israel, this is not a God that you want to trifle with. They were told if they touched the mountain, they would die. Why? Because he's holy. He's teaching them his whole, that he is holy. Now, he begins, this is in Exodus chapter 20, he begins to speak. And he gives Moses what has traditionally come to be called the Ten Commandments. And it's from those ten, we're going to look at very briefly in a moment, it's from those Ten Commandments that the entire rest of the law of Moses, which takes up many, 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 many chapters in Exodus, Leviticus, and on up to the end of Deuteronomy, all the many commandments God gives his people flow out of the principles embedded in these first ten. They're the heart. They're the source. In the Hebrew text, it's interesting to note that the phrase, the ten commandments, is not there. They're actually, in the original, if you go back, they're simply called the ten 
words. And we'll just linger long enough to note something about the ten, about a preamble that God speaks before he gives the, the words, the commands, and then which, what happens in the first of the ten and what happens in the tenth of the ten. Before God starts telling Moses the actual commands, the thou shalts, and the thou shalt nots, he utters what we call the preamble, something that comes first. And he says this, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Think of that like a banner. And if I were going to write the Ten Commandments, like if we had a blackboard or something here, or one to ten, writing them out in full, but then over the top of all of them, in large letters, I would write a banner, which is in a sense the source of the ten. And it would say this, I am the Lord. He's the reason that there are commandments. I am the Lord. They're all The commandments are all about God, about who he is. Well, who is he? Well, he tells us in that little preamble, I am the Lord. It's, the name there is Yahweh. The, the name, it's revealed at the burning bush. I'm the burning bush God, Israel. I'm still with you. This story is still very much in full swing. I am the burning bush God. Yahweh is my name. And I brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage or slavery. I have established you as my people. Now, if you want to buy into this and walk with me, here's what it's going to look like. And then the thou shalts begin. Who can tell us, have a very brief Bible quiz, what's the first? They will not what? Have any other God. Excellent. Aaron, you have a well-trained congregation here. I'm very impressed. We know that the first of the ten. Now think for a moment about the linkage between that preamble, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, and then the first command. If we have a God who is powerful enough to take on the biggest empire of the day, Egypt, and who's powerful enough to open up a huge body of water so that hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people can walk across without their sandals even getting muddy because they walked, it says twice, on dry grounds, not muddy ground, but dry ground. He can bring them all these hundreds of miles to this mountain. If he can do that, why would they need another God? They've got the best one on the market. That's a trivialized way to say it, but you know where I'm going. Why would they need anyone else or anyone to supplement or add to this God? He's already demonstrated his great compassion and care for his people. He's already demonstrated his omnipotent power. A body of water the size of the Red Sea, it's nothing to him. He just goes like that and it opens up. There's a highway through the middle of it. Pharaoh and his army, when Israel saw them chasing them, chasing them, Israel was terrified. It's nothing for God. He just says to the water, okay, hold on about one more minute. Okay, 30 seconds. Okay, you ready? Okay, boom. The water closes in. That's the end of Pharaoh. This is a powerful God. 
He cares about them. Why would they need another God? You see how this all fits together. The preamble is the fountain of where it says, I am the Lord, your God. That's the source of the commands. Who can tell us what's the tenth? You shall not... Come on, Aaron. <laughs> the you shall not... gets good, Norm Covet. You shall not covet. Coveting, of course, is when you sort of selfishly wish you had what somebody else had. When Velma and I lived in England, we, I used to go for walks. I still walk, do that to keep in shape. And there was about four or five blocks from our house. We lived in a sort of a very middle class, maybe even lower middle class road. It was a nice place. But I went to another place four or five blocks away where it was a distinctively up, you know, step up the market, if you know what I mean, more upscale than the street we lived on. And the houses, they were elegant. They're the kind you, you would see in, in magazines. And I would deliberately walk around because I've always enjoyed architecture and well-designed houses. And I would sometimes just walk along and stand at the end of some guy's driveway and just look at the house. And I often wonder, what, what am I going to do one of these days if the guy comes up his driveway and says, may I, may I ask what you're doing here? What would I say? Well, I'm standing here violating the Tenth Commandment. Is that what I'm... <laughs> because that's what I was doing. That's what I was doing. Do you know what? If the God who can take on Egypt and win and bring his people through the, the Red Sea, if he can do all that, and if he set, calls us his people and he calls himself our God, I am the Lord, your God. If that kind of God is my God, I don't need a fancier house. You with me? We have this God who's supremely wonderful, wonderful above any and all things. We could develop the ten words more. This is the hint. All we're saying here, how does this fit in to him being teacher God? He is our teacher God. At the heart of the ten words is the reality, the reality that our teacher God is all-sufficient. We have him. That's what we need. The teacher God, moving on, in civil law. Scholars often have divided up the law of Moses. By the way, the, if you add it all up, how many individual commands there are, and you take out the duplicates, because there's some where word for word they're repeated in Deuteronomy, what God had told them earlier in Exodus. If you take out the duplicates, and how many individual non-repeated commands are there? Scholars tell us, I've never counted to see, that it comes out to 613. It's a lot of commands. And if you sift through what they talk about, they kind of spread into three categories. There's um, moral law, you shall not steal. There's ceremonial law, here's how you do an offering or a sacrifice. Here's what the, the robes that the priests would wear, they had to be made a certain way. All that was ceremonial law. And then there was what is called civil law law, things like legal matters. There's a well-known one in Exodus 21 about what happens if my ox gets out of its pen and runs over into Aaron's yard and tramples the poor man. What happens if my ox kills somebody or if it gores them? 
It's a bit grim when you read it, but you know, you had to deal. This was a society can't function without laws. What if I get caught robbing a bank? What are they going to do to me? There needs to be something written out ahead of time to allow and to provide for these kinds of situations. Civil law. Let's take a moment on the ox. My ox gores someone, my neighbor. So then what do you do? Well, here's the rule. And it, had, it has justice built into it, but also mercy. If it had, the, the text tells us, it tells us, it's in Exodus 21. If it had never happened before, this is my first time my ox had got out, they put the ox to death. There's no options on that one. I am given a very severe, stern warning. Don't you ever let this happen again. But that's about the end of it. However, if my ox gets out, kills someone, tragically, and the the authorities, the elders come and they make an inquiry and they say, Mr. Perry, it appears to us this happened about a year ago or two years ago. This has happened before and you were warned then. Now that ups the game. This ups the game big time. Because the text requires the words God gives Moses say that this time the ox dies and so does the owner. Unless the family of the victims say, no, it's all right. If he can provide, if the the guilty party, me, can provide what was called a ransom. And that's literally the word. It's in Exodus 21, chapter 21, verse 30. Most English Bibles translate it ransom. If I can provide a ransom or a ransom payment, then my life is spared. Do you remember what Christ said? Why he came? The Son of Man came to give his life as a what? As a ransom. I would argue that Jesus there, that's in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I would argue he is directly echoing Exodus 21, the ox law. Because the owner of the ox there, he's out of options. He's got no hope unless the offended parties will receive a ransom. And now God receives a ransom on our behalf, and it's his own son. Amen, we get the point. It points us to Christ, and what I really wanted to establish there, I got a bit carried away in the detail. The point is the civil law that teacher God gives Moses contains justice and mercy. Are you glad of that? There needs to be justice, but it's also got mercy built in. Teacher God. Teacher God in Israel's worship. There's a phrase that comes through very frequently in the Old Testament, especially the first five books, especially the book of Leviticus. I know we're majoring in Exodus at the moment, and this phrase does appear in Exodus a handful of times, but it goes into overdrive when you get into Leviticus, and it's the phrase we see on the screen, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. My wife does not like men's colognes, so I don't wear them. You know, English leather and jade, there's hundreds of them on the market. She says, I don't like 
colognes. We, we have unscented everything in our house, unscented shampoo, unscented body wash, right down the line. I do what pleases her, which is a non-aroma. There were aromas that pleased God in Scripture. And that was the whole point of worship, was to please God. Do you see, particularly the culture we live in, we are so oriented to self-pleasing or trying to please people. Well, if you start buying into teacher God, especially as he's revealed in the, the law of Moses, you find out that pleasing ourselves is not the top priority. It isn't even on the list of priorities. It's pleasing him, a pleasing aroma. One fragrance I just absolutely do love, and I confess my wife likes this one, it's brewing coffee. The the scent of coffee perking in the coffee pot. Velma and I are serious coffee-holics, and we love that fragrance. And we just smell it. Well, you know what? According to these books, these laws in the Old Testament, when people would come in faith and do these offerings the way they're supposed to be done, the image it gives us is God going, sniffing us and saying, oh, I love that smell. It's like coffee. I love that smell. Or curry. I love Indian food. I love the the fragrance of curry. I think I'm getting carried away again. A, A pleasing aroma to the Lord. New Testament epistles, notably Ephesians and 2 Corinthians, Ephesians pick up on this aroma imagery. Ephesians 5 2, chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love, this verse says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now get this, get this. He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What kind of offering? Fragrant. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul takes the fragrant imagery a step further. Now, this, I know it doesn't take, surprise you to know that Jesus became a fragrant offering that pleased God. Well, he goes further than that in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this. He calls us, we, he says, if, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, we are the aroma of Christ. To God. And God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Him in every place. Sometimes it takes faith for me to believe I am the fragrance of Christ to God, but that's what the Word says. Teacher God, in Israel's worship, it's all about Him. Can we? Ask God to help us turn a corner and get out of the self-pleasing, people-pleasing infection of our culture. We're here on earth, folks, to please God. What dark roast coffee is for Dave Perry, let the church that preaches Christ's gospel and walks by the Holy Spirit, let us be that fragrance to him. Does that sound like a good plan? That's why we're here. Teacher God. Teacher God in the tabernacle. The the Bible's teaching on the tabernacle begins in Exodus 25. It's a tent. The tabernacle was essentially a tent. 
But it's got, it's chock-a-block full of teaching and doctrine and theology and symbols and word pictures that point us to God. Why was there a tabernacle in the first place? The answer to that is in Exodus 25, verse 8. God, so to speak, he, the picture we have there is of Moses is up on the top of Sinai and it's like God hands him a blueprint. Take the, here you go, Moses. You go down there and you get your craftsmen and carpenters and artists together and build this worship tent. Here's the blueprint. But the details are second in importance to the reason for the tabernacle. God says to Moses, build this so that. Do A so that B can happen. You with me? Build a tent so that something else can happen. And the so that is that God could live in their midst. Build this, make me a sanctuary so that I might dwell in the midst of them. The artist's impression we have on the screen, it shows, of course, the tents of the people. And in Numbers chapter 2, we won't go there at the moment, but the book of Numbers goes into elaborate detail about how the tents of the different tribes were to be arranged around God's tent. Each tribe had a certain place it was supposed to set up. But not only that, every single individual tent, I always remember this because it's Numbers 2, 2, Numbers chapter 2, verse 2. Every individual tent, like if it was me and Velma and our family, we would have our own tent somewhere in, among our own tribe. And our own individual tent, it would have a front flap, so to speak, the, the front door, as it were. And I was supposed to set up our family's tent so that it was facing God's tent. Numbers 2, verse 2. You know, there's theology in that. Live your life facing God. Focused on God. Let Him be our center. When you would go inside the tent, which you were only allowed to do if you were authorized as a priest, you would notice that as you made your way from the outside closer and closer in to the Holy of Holies, the materials that it was all made of got increasingly expensive as you kept going further and further in. The outermost curtains were just animal skins. There's debate on how you translate the kind of animal it was, but there were nothing very remarkable. From the very, very outside, it probably didn't look all that impressive. But when you went inside, it was a different kind of curtains. And when you get to the Holy of Holies, it's fine silk. And all the metal at that point is fine, top quality gold. Now, what's that mean? It's, it's a prophetic picture. Teacher God is teaching Israel something here. The closer you get to me, the more valuable it is. It points to the supreme value of God himself. Why was there a tabernacle so God could dwell in our midst? And this points, the physical tent, we're going to move on in a second here, the physical tent pointed forward. It was very, very prophetic because it pointed beyond itself to something else. John Chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word was made flesh, and, and in the Greek it says, tabernacled among us. Do you like that? 
God dwelt in the midst of the people in that tent that we see on the screen. But that pointed forward to a more a better tabernacling. God came in the form of a person, Jesus of Nazareth. The word was made flesh, made fle- made flesh and tabernacled among us. And then the crowning climax of this entire God among us thing. Remember this is teacher God. This is teacher God saying, I want to dwell with you. Do you understand this? It climaxes in Revelation chapter 21. It's one of John's final glorious visions of the God's end times plans. And he sees a city coming down out of the sky. I think if I saw a city coming out of the sky, that would get my attention. And it sure got John's attention. And he heard a voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. They will be his people. He will be their God. The former things have passed away. And now, behold, the new has come. It's the presence of God himself himself coming down out of heaven onto the earth. Teacher God, he's saying something. He's teaching us things. He wants to dwell with us. Fast forward to the New Testament. The teacher God... He's still in business. If anything, it goes into overdrive when he gets to the New Testament. Teacher God in the New Testament. One of my favorite stories, if not my very favorite, the Lord of the storm. The Lord of the storm. I don't know who invented the phrase sleeping Savior, but I like it. Partly because I like to have a good sleep. But partly because it says something very precious about Jesus. You know the story. The storm kicks up. The disciples, virtually, or not all of whom, but most of whom were former fishermen, they had probably spent maybe even thousands of hours in their adult life in boats on the surface of the Sea of Galilee. And you know, they had seen storms. But this storm, particularly in Matthew's version, and the word it uses, that Matthew uses to describe this storm, Matthew, he doesn't use the word storm. He uses the word earthquake. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. I mean, he calls it an earthquake. It's a seismos from which we get seismograph. A seismos struck the sea. This is a big storm. And the disciples are terrified. They're scared out of their wits. They look to Jesus and he's sound asleep. And they rouse him, Lord, don't you master, don't you care, we are perishing. And the boat, it says, was filling with water. In Mark's version, the, the boat was swamped. Don't you care? So he wakes up, he stands up, and he says about four words, not even that. Peace, be still. So he's the sleeping Savior which says that he doesn't panic. He doesn't need to because he's got everything under control. Maybe we need to join him in sleeping. (laughs) Maybe we need to join him in being at rest in the face of crises. That's Jesus, you know. However, not only is he the sleeping Savior, he's also the Lord of creation. And when he speaks, creation hears I like to think of the sea in that storm speaking to the wind. I'm using my imagination here, but I think it's it's got something. I like to think of the sea yelling to the wind 
and saying, hey, would you stop making so much noise? Didn't you hear that voice? It told us to quiet down. And the wind says, no, I didn't hear anything. I'm making too much noise. Well, I know, says the sea. You're making too much noise. I recognize that voice. That's the voice that told us waters to open up and let Israel cross the Red Sea. Same voice. He's the Lord of creation. The physical world is under his authority. How do we know? Because God set this whole situation up to teach us something. Teacher God. Teacher God in the book of Acts. You know the story, I'm sure. In Acts chapter 10, Simon Peter, Orthodox, mainstream, rabbinic, synagogue-based Jewish believer... He has a vision where he sees a whole bunch of unclean food paraded in front of him. Pork chops, etc. And he hears a voice, take and eat. And he freaks out. He says, this this has to be a demonic dream. That's what he's thinking. But it happens three times. Not once, not twice. Three times. And then he realizes it's God. You know what God's doing? He's teaching Simon Peter and the very early church something. He's teaching them that he, God, is redefining clean and unclean. The law of Moses was full of all kinds of regulations about clean, unclean, clean foods, unclean foods, clean days of the week, unclean, all different kinds of clean and unclean. You could only potentially be clean if you were part of ethnic Israel. And even then you had to scrupulously obey all the ceremonial cleanness regulations about sexual practices, about menstrual cycles, about food. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. You had to have your wits about you to remain clean in God's eyes under the law of Moses. Peter had learned to live that way. He still did, even as a follower of Jesus. And he hears a voice say, go ahead, eat these pork chops, Peter. And Peter says, oh, I could never do that. But then he realizes what's going on because on the back of that vision about foods, God says, I want you to go and visit a Gentile household and tell them the gospel. Do you know what's going on? God is sending a message to the church. God is teaching the church because he's the teaching God that now there's a new definition of clean. You're clean in God's eyes if you're holding on to Christ as your Savior. Doesn't matter if you're Roman. Doesn't matter if you're uncircumcised. Doesn't matter if you don't have one speck of Jewish blood. You're clean in God's eyes if you're holding on to Christ as Savior. And when Cornelius hears this gospel of Christ's authority, his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead, when Cornelius and his household hear this in Acts chapter 10, their hearts just open in minutes. They're, they're blown away. They think it's such amazing good news. Peter hasn't even finished his sermon. I hope this doesn't ever happen when I'm preaching, but it happened to Peter. He, hadn't even, he was only two-thirds of the way through his prepared message, and the Spirit comes down, and the people all start babbling in tongues because they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Please don't any of you do that right now, okay? because I'm not finished my sermon yet. God showed up before Peter got to the altar call. Evangelists don't like that. Teacher God. He sings, time for, I'm I'm coming, my son Jesus, by his death and resurrection, he is the ultimate game changer. 
He's changed everything now. And now there's a new kind of clean. It's simply believing in him. Teacher God in the New Testament. Teacher God in the New Testament. Something that can happen for us in abundance and lack. Philippians 4, St. Paul says this, I have learned, note that little phrase, I have learned. Well, that's what you do when you're following the teacher God. He teaches, we learn. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned. There's that word learned again. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. I love that. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The point here, Philippians 4, that was verses 11 and 12. This is something Paul had to learn. We've probably all seen pictures, artists' impressions of that fateful moment when Paul is on his way to Damascus when he was still called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest a bunch of Christians and throw them in prison. And he has a vision. It's so intense and so bright, although it probably only lasted a matter of seconds, he's physically blinded. He sees the ascended Lord Jesus in heaven. He has to get someone to pray for his eyes to get healed after. Now notice what Paul says and doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh, you Philippians, I, want, I can never forget that day. The day I saw the ascended Christ in heaven and the moment I saw him, I've been content all the time since that moment. That's not what it says. That's not what Paul teaches. He did meet Jesus and he right away, as soon as he realized who Jesus really was, that this voice from heaven really was Jesus, he surrendered and committed himself. There was no looking back. But there were other areas in his life he had to learn things. He says, I've had to learn this one. I didn't get it in the first 10 minutes. I didn't get it in the first year or two years, whatever. I had to learn this. Well, it's okay to have to learn things because we belong to the teacher God. He teaches, we learn. Let's ask ask a couple questions as we close. The question to ask Teacher God, this is it. What are you teaching me? I I trust you'll be pleased to know that in the time since Velma and I returned to Winnipeg from our 11 years in England, that was June 2016, I have made, I think, four or five generous donations to the city of Winnipeg. because of my carelessness in school speed zones. 
Some of those have been generous donations in terms of, because it depends how far over the limit you over, that's how, far, how much they charge you. What's God teaching me? One's listen to your wife, because more than once she said you're going too fast. The other is to obey the Bible, and the Bible says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, to submit to the governing authorities, including the city government. It's carelessness on my part. It's a lack of regard for legitimate laws like speed limits, and it's a lack of obedience to God. That's what it is. What's God teaching me? He's teaching me to jolly well be careful when I'm driving a car. Does that sound good? That's part of obeying God. Just everyday, everyday practical obedience. The question we have to ask, we always need to ask teacher God, what are you teaching me? I was very impacted, as I know others were, by Andrea's message a few weeks ago on the clay, you know, the, the potter's wheel. And she taught us to, and Jeremiah chapter 18 teaches us to see ourselves as in the potter's hands, on the potter's wheel, and that the, the original work there, Jeremiah 18, the original work of, in the clay, it wasn't done properly, so the potter had to get it back on the wheel and recenter it. Recenter it. Every one of us has situations where things get difficult and confusing, and we start to center on something other than Christ. For Velma and me, in the last probably 10 months, it's been our son in Scotland who had this dreadful stroke. He can still only speak in a very, very limited way. He's a teacher, so this gets in the way of his vocation. And there's scarcely an hour goes by that I don't remember again that this has happened. And I think, oh my Lord, help him. Help us all. Would you just work in this situation? It's very, very difficult. There's times it burdens me, and there's many, many times I'm realizing in recent weeks that need, which is a legitimate need, that need has become my center. Who is my real center? It's Christ himself. If we're centering on something other than Christ himself, even if it's a loved one who's in a situation of real need, it's great that we pray for people we love and that we're burdened for, but they're not supposed to be the center. Are you hearing me here, folks? This is teacher God speaking to all of us. There's only one worthy to be the center. And when God brings us through something that's difficult, like that situation I'm describing, you know what it is? It's the potter's hands in the clay recentering us. May God give us grace to yield to that, to the, to the potter's hands on the clay. We need to be centered. What are you teaching me, Lord? He's teaching me to center on him. I want to conclude with having us read something together from one of my very favorite psalms. It's Psalm 25. It's, it's so rich. It connects itself, the psalm does, with the previous one, 24. In Psalm 24, there's a line that says, you know, who is it that can approach God? And it gives a description of who can approach God. And one of the descriptions in Psalm 24 is, he who does not lift up his soul to
to what is false. Interesting description. Who's the person that can approach God? It's someone who doesn't lift his soul up to what is false. Okay, that's in your mind as you finish reading Psalm 24. Then you begin Psalm 25. The first opening words are, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. If there's a problem with lifting up our souls to something that's false, what's the answer? (laughs) It's to start lifting up our souls to the real God, the true God, the God of Israel, the God that sent Jesus. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's how it begins. Now, as we work through Psalm 25, and I'm going to ask us all to stand in a moment and read a brief clip together. The whole psalm is about learning from God. And the psalmist here is asking God to be his teacher. He's asking God to be his teacher and to help him to learn. Remember, he teaches, we learn. If we do it that way, it works. Okay? Can we stand? The words are on the screen. I'm going to read this and I'll turn it over to Aaron. Make a mental check every time in these lines that it's anything to do with God as our teacher. Here we go. One, two, three. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways that they should choose. Lord, we pray you'd help us to live that way, that that psalm would be our psalm. Teacher God, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.